Good to see you. Uh, keep your Bibles open uh, there. That would be fantastic. Uh, I hope you've been uh, liking Isaiah. Uh, what a book, hey? And what a passage, gosh. Um, here we go. Why don't I pray? And then uh, we'll, look at, we'll look at this passage together. Let's pray. Um, our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus, who is the Lord of the nations. Father, we know that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And Father, we know that you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We pray, Father, that as we watch the, this battle between these two kings, King Hezekiah of Judah, God's people, and King Sennacherib of Assyria, uh, Father, that you would expose the the pride in our own hearts, but you would also humble us so that we might receive your salvation. And I pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Uh, so, so far in this series, we've been doing something that's pretty unusual in our society uh, these days. We've been reading poetry. I don't know if you realize this. And I sort of felt like as we've been reading Isaiah, that we, we needed a, I feel like when I read Isaiah that we need sort of, I need to be sitting down in an old comfy chair you know, with a, uh, with, a, with a tweed jacket on. You know those ones with the, with the, uh, with the, the things, like the elbow patches, yeah? And I need a pipe. I feel like I need a pipe as I'm reading Isaiah. And as you read Isaiah, you sort of need to use a voice like this because this is the sort of people that read poetry. They have voices like this and they sort of very sophisticated as they have their pipe and read their poetry. Is this, is this what you imagine when you re- imagine reading poetry? No, you don't? <laughs> Hipsters reading poetry in the eastern suburbs with long beards and short sides, right? Is that what you imagine? I don't know what you imagine as we read poetry, but as we come, and that's the that's why Isaiah is really difficult, uh, because it's poetic and so it's difficult to get our heads around the language. Also, um, it jumps backwards and forwards between events, and so I don't know about you, but I find it difficult to follow exactly where we're up to. What's happening in history, or is that just me? And I've studied this book <laughs> in great detail. It's difficult. But now we actually come to a part of Isaiah, thir- chapters 36 to 39, which is sort of the historical narrative. It's sort of much of the backstory that lies behind the book of Isaiah. And so if you read 36 to 39, you'll get a great idea about what are the events that lie behind the things that the prophet. Isaiah is saying and in this passage the key question is who are you going to trust who are you going to trust because at this point really where we are is there is a battle between two kings in the red corner if you like you've got King Sennacherib of Assyria the warmongering uh, dictator who's coming down to take over God's people in the blue corner you've got King Hezekiah of Judah. It's 701 BC, and this is where we are. Uh, Hezekiah is the king of Judah, and at this point, the rot has really set into God's people. They're worshipping other gods in the temple, and Hezekiah is a pretty good king, and he wants to try and change things in Jerusalem and in Judah, and he tries to improve things, and he doesn't want to sell out his soul like others have. But at this point, Judah, God's people, is on the verge of extinction, and King Sennacherib of Assyria, this is what's going on. He's swept down, he's swept across the northern area of here. He's 
taken out 46 Judean cities down the Mediterranean coast. He's come down here. He's now camped at Lachish, just outside of Jerusalem. He's destroyed 46 cities, and he's right in front of King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. And in fact, you know that in King Sennacherib's own writings that we've found in history, he said this of Hezekiah, I've got him like a bird in a cage. He's trapped, and I'm going to get him. That's the context of where we are at the start of chapter 36. Have have a look at the start of chapter 36 um, with me. We'll read through it. Sennacherib has Hezekiah like a bird in a cage. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh, along with a massive army, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the fuller's field. Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, who was in charge of the palace, Shebna, the court secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the court historian, came out to him. The Rabshakeh said to them, Tell Hezekiah, the great king of Assyria, says this, What are you relying on? He says, Who are you going to trust, Hezekiah? And then he starts to mock God. (laughs) Have a look at verse 5. He says, I say that your strategy and military preparedness are mere words. What are you now relying on that you've rebelled against me? Look, you're trusting in Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will enter and pierce the hand of anyone who leans on it. This is how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who trust in him. Suppose you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar? I mean, the Assyrian king at this point is a master in that satanic art of sowing doubt into the hearts of God's people. You know what that's like? You don't believe in that God who walked on water, do you? Do you? You know you'd be more free if you weren't a Christian. It's much better on the other side. Uh, Surely, if God's a loving God, then surely he would get rid of all the suffering that's in the world, wouldn't he? And you know why the doubts of the Assyrian king are so good? You know why they're so powerful? It's because they're half true. Right? Your army isn't ready, Hezekiah. That's sort of right. <laughs> right? Egypt, that splintered reed that you're relying on, they're useless. That was true. You're trusting God. Hang on. Is this the same God that your king Hezekiah moved the places of worship and moved them to Jerusalem? In other words, you're trusting in a king who shut down churches. Really? Half true. And then he throws the ultimate doubt into any person who trusts in God. Have a look at what he says in verse 10 of Isaiah 37. He says, Have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, Attack this land and destroy it. I mean, Hezekiah, your own God is bringing judgment on you using me god is judging you using me he puts doubt in his mind he's trying to put doubts into the minds of god's people he's trying to convince them that their faith in god is 
not worth having. Now, what does God actually want his people to do at this point? You know, when people sow doubts in your minds about God's promises, what does God actually want us to do? Well, he wants us to turn and to trust him, but only because we've got a good reason to trust him. Uh, do you remember back in Isaiah chapter 7? Who, who's, you, you guys been reading along? It's been helpful, Cam and, and, and Troy sending out the passages. It's fantastic to read along in Isaiah. But remember back in chapter 7, if you can remember f- that far back, Ahaz was the king of Judah at that point. And the northern kingdom were attacking and Aram was attacking. And at that point, Ahaz had the opportunity to trust God. But what did he do? No, <laughs> he turned to Assyria. He, <laughs> and so what does God do? God says, the very nation that you turned to trust in I'm going to turn that very nation against you. The object of your faith, Assyria, will actually be the nation that comes and judges God's own people. It's amazing, isn't it? Look at what God says in Isaiah chapter 10. He says, Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger. The staff in their hands is my wrath. I will send him against a godless nation. I will command him to go against a people destined for my rage to take spoils to plunder and to trample them down like clay in the streets. You you notice how God refers to Assyria as the rod of his anger? He's actually using Assyria to bring judgment on his own people. Did Assyria think they were doing that? (laughs) No. Look at verse 7. But this is not what he intends, the king of Assyria. This is not what he plans. It is his intent to destroy and to cut off many nations. Assyria doesn't think that it's acting as a nation working for God and his purposes. The Assyrian king is just a bloodthirsty, proud, arrogant tyrant who is conquering the world. And so what does God plan to do? Well, look at verse 12 of Isaiah 10. But when the Lord finishes all of his work against Mount Zion, that is his own people in Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for his arrogant acts and the proud look in his eyes. Right? God is the ruler of history. And it's important we see this in Isaiah, that he can use evil nations like Assyria to bring about his judgment on his own people. And yet at the same time, he will judge the proud, arrogant, boastful actions of a foreign king. God is the ruler of history. He can use evil but then he'll judge evil. <laughs> but the problem is, at this point, did God's people learn, his, learn their lesson? <laughs> Absolutely not, right? When, when Assyria came to attack, what did the people do? They put their trust in Egypt, that splintered reed, the very nation that God had rescued them from out of slavery 800 years before. Uh, have a look at this in Isaiah chapter 31. It says this, God's people, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and who depend on horses. They trust in the abundance of chariots and in the large number of horsemen. They do not look to the Holy One of Israel and they do not seek the Lord's help. But he is also wise and brings disaster. He does not go back on what he says. He will rise up against the house of wicked men and against the allies of evildoers. And then he says, if my thing will work, Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord raises his hand to strike, 
the helper will stumble, and the one who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. God says, if you go to Egypt for help, guess what? They're going to fall, and you're going to fall with them. Why have you not trusted in me? And do you know how God makes his point? He says to Isaiah, I want you to walk around amongst the people naked for three years. Did you see that? Have you got to chapter 20 yet? Yeah? Who'd want to be a prophet? Look at this. Look at Isaiah chapter 20. This is what God called him to do. He said, In the year that the chief commander sent by Saragon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod and attacked it and captured it. During that time, the Lord had spoken through Isaiah, son of Amos, saying, Go, take off your sackcloth and remove your sandals from your feet. And he did so, going naked and barefoot. The Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has gone naked and barefoot three years, as a sign and omen against Egypt and Cush, so the king of Assyria will lead the captives of Egypt and the exiles of Cush, young and old alike, naked and barefoot, with bared buttocks, to Egypt's shame. The people were meant to see Isaiah naked, just walking around, right, preaching, nude, and just realize how ridiculous it is to trust in Egypt. So they think, trust in Egypt, Isaiah is naked, that's ridiculous. So trusting in Egypt is ridiculous. And so God's point was to use his prophet to look ridiculous, to show that trusting in anything or anyone other than God is ridiculous. And so his prophet bears his backside to the congregation each and every Sunday. And so just in case you feel embarrassed about sharing the gospel with your friends, right? just spare a thought for Isaiah and toughen up and get on with it because God could have asked you to do it nude, but he hasn't. You can keep your clothes on to share Jesus. But you think about this, don't you think how slow are God's people to learn, to trust him? But then I think, I read this and I think, well, where do I turn when things go wrong? Where do I turn when I'm sick and when I'm worried and when things are just all falling apart? Do I worry myself and just stress my head off? Do I phone a friend? Do I pray to God? See, it's very helpful under stress to watch God's people and to watch what they did. Because, you know, when we're under stress, it's very easy to make up every single reason in the world why we should basically build up other things to put our confidence in other than God to make sure that we feel good and to make sure that we feel secure. And especially when people like King Sennacherib come along and taunt you and say, you don't trust in that Jesus fellow, do you, to get you through this? And you don't believe in a crucified God... And you don't sacrifice your life to him, do you? You, That's just a little bit ridiculous. And so surely it makes sense. Maybe we should, don't you feel like, sometimes you feel like, maybe I should look after myself. Maybe I should take some precautions. Maybe I should be a bit more sensible. Maybe I should gather around myself as much popularity and status and education and money and all the things that make everyone feel comfortable. Make Make sure I've got lots of that sort of stuff. And yet Isaiah challenges us, you know, when those taunts and those doubts rise up in our heads and our hearts. Are we going to bravely resolve to silence them and live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? 
are we going to trust him or in our own resources? Um, what did Hezekiah do? Did he fold under the taunts of Sennacherib? Um, have a look at verse 14 of chapter 37. Hezekiah, this is a beautiful picture. Hezekiah took the letter from the messengers, that is the one mocking God, and he read it. And then he went up to the Lord's temple and he spread it out before the Lord. So there's this beautiful image. So Hezekiah, this letter of all the things he's worrying about, he takes this letter and he, and he spreads it out before God. And what does he do? Then he prays. And what does he pray? Look at verse 16. Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are God, you alone. Of all the kingdoms of the earth, you made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the kings of Assyria have devastated all these countries in their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, for they were not gods but made by human hands wood and stone, so they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, save us from his power, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, you alone. You, you know, when we pray, it's like we're doing exactly the same thing, that we're laying a letter before God of all of our concerns and all of our worries and everything that's going on, and he hears and he listens. And the temple that we go to is Jesus, and he takes our prayers into the very throne room of God, our Heavenly Father. And it's a beautiful picture, yeah? Because all of our letters are different. I know some of your letters are, Lord, with the kids, can you please help? Lord, my exams are driving me crazy and I'm stressed. Lord, this job, I just wish I had another one. Lord, I just wish I had a job. Lord, I need some money. Um... Lord, my friend's walking away from Jesus. Lord, I'm sick. Lord, my friend is sick. Um, I don't know what you've got written on your letter. But Hezekiah is this beautiful image that he's under threat. And this letter that's, that's causing him concern, he brings it up before God and in his name he prays. God wants us to turn to him and trust him. And do you know what God will do sometimes? Sometimes he will strip away from our life the very things that we're putting our trust in that aren't him and he'll get rid of it if that's what it takes to teach us to trust him. Do you know what I'm saying? You know, one of, one of the deep indicators that we trust in God, like Hezekiah, is if we pray. And if we don't pray, it's a sign that like Judah, we haven't learned to trust God yet and we're leaning on our own understanding and not only that we have a great god we have a god who's willing to hear our prayers we had the lord jesus who died and rose again for us and now he takes our prayers into the very throne room of god and not only that he's willing to hear us and he's powerful enough to do something about it god wants his people to turn to him and to trust him and to pray to him and when we don't pray it's a demonstration of where our heart is that we're trusting in us and not him. There's another thing going on in this passage, though. 
At this point, lots of people read these passages and they think, is God going to answer Hezekiah's prayer? The king of Assyria is a proud, boastful, taunting, mocking king. What's going to happen to him? Well, the Assyrian king's pride will be his downfall. Uh, Look at verse 21. Look what happens to him. Virgin daughter Zion despises you and scorns you, king of Assyria. Daughter Jerusalem shakes her head behind your back. Who is it you have mocked and blasphemed? Who have you raised your voice against and lifted your eyes in pride against the Holy One of Israel? You have mocked the Lord through your servants. You have said, with, many char- with my many chariots, I've gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon. I cut down its tallest cedars, its choice cypress trees. I came to its distant heights, its densest forest. Look at verse 33. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here or come before it with a shield or build up an assault ramp against Jerusalem. He will go back the way he came and he will not enter this city. This is the Lord's declaration. I will defend this city and rescue it because of me and because of my servant David. God answers the prayers of his king, Hezekiah. And just, to, just in case you thought that King Sennacherib could mock God and laugh at him and get away with it, uh, look at verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, they were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and left. He returned home and lived in Nineveh. Nineveh. You know that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Could you imagine if you woke up this morning and every single person in Bexley and every single person in Carlton and every single person in Bexley North and every single person in San Susie and every single person in Ramsgate and every single person in Mortdale and every single person in the entire St. George region lay dead on the ground under the judgment of the living God. For that is what happened in Assyria that day. Now, what do we make of that? What do we make of the horrific judgment of God like that? The first thing to say is the really simplistic answer. And there needs to be a better answer than this, but this is the simple one. Is that God loves us and he made us. He's our creator. He gave us life. To reject him means to cut yourself off from life itself. And so here it is. The just judgment of God on those who reject his very life. But I, there's more to say about judgment in these passages. So can you turn up, turn up to chapter 28, verse 21? And I need you to do it because you've got to talk to the person next to you about it. So turn to chapter 28, verse 21. I want us to learn something about God's judgment here. I'm going to read this first, then I want you to talk to the person next to you about it. So Isaiah 28, verse 21, it says this. It says, For the Lord will rise up as he did at Mount Perizim. He will rise in wrath, as at the valley of Gibeon, to do his work, his strange work, and to perform his task, his disturbing task. I want you to talk to the person next to you. What's, what's God's strange work? What's his 
disturbing task? What is the task that will disturb him? Uh, talk to the person next to you, and then I'm going to ask someone. What's his strange work? What's his disturbing task? Did you work it out? I know it's simple comprehension, but I want you to think about it. What, tell me, what, what, what's God's strange task? Shout it out, wake your hand up. What's God's strange task? His judgment. Yeah, the coming of his wrath. Uh, what's God's disturbing task? Yeah, same thing. He's wrath. They both come after each other. God's wrath, God's judgment is his strange work, his disturbing task. What I think Isaiah is saying is that, yes, God will judge, but he does so reluctantly. He does so with a heavy heart. He would much rather show compassion. But as a loving father, or in in the case of a loving father or mother, it's very unloving to not show discipline upon your children, right? Right. uh, I'll, I'll explain this. Apparently, this is legal now, so when I tell this story, don't go repeating this at home. But um, when I was a kid, in terms of discipline, I, had, I remember when I was 12, I had the final showdown with my mum in terms of corporal punishment. And um, my mum used to, uh, the wooden spoon was her favourite implement. And um, did a few of you might have met mum before tonight, right? Yeah. So mum's a small lady, even smaller than me. And... Um, she used to get the wooden spoon, right? And one time I was 12 years old and she came and whack right on me, right? And then I said, is that the best you can do? <laughs> and she's like, right. So she goes into the kitchen and she shelves the wooden spoon, brings out the, the metal egg spatula, says, right. And I'm at this point, I only got my, you know, boxes on or whatever. And then, you know, she exposes a bit more of the raw flesh. Whack with this spatula, okay? I think I've still got the mark to this day. And I swear it cut me, but she doesn't think that, that she doesn't remember that, right? But then mum was going for it again. And so I, she went to him and I put my hand down and I went to block her and her wrist hit my wrist, right? And then mum's, oh, she's sort of writhing in pain and then I feel bad. And, and anyway, it was the last time I ever got hit uh, with a spoon or spatula. I think I was grounded for about a month. But... um. It is true, isn't it, that uh, you don't try that at home. But parents who don't love their children don't discipline them in any way. Parents who love their children discipline their children. And yet here's, because parents don't, who love their children don't want their children to damage themselves, to cause damage to others. It's not loving to stand by and do nothing. And so here is God disciplining his children so that they might trust him. But he takes no delight in it. Right? Whenever you read Isaiah and there's these passages about judgment, almost immediately following is God's offer of salvation and comfort and hope for the remnant who turn and put their trust in him. God will judge, but he delights to show compassion. 
Because remember, the same God who's revealing his character in this book is the same God who told the parable of the lost son. You know the parable of the lost son? You know what Jesus told? You know that parable when he said there was a son who came to his father and he said, Dad, I know you're not dead yet, but I wish you were. So can you just give me my inheritance now? So the father goes, okay. So he divides up his property, gives it to his younger son. Younger son runs off to the city, spends his money on women and on his friends. Wild living, wild living. basically the money runs out. And as soon as your money runs out in the city, uh, your friends run away too. And uh, he ends up with nothing. And this son, he wishes that he could eat the pods that the pigs were eating. And he decides, I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he practices his speech and he's heading home back to his father. And what does his father do? His father stands on the porch and goes, oh, this better be good. Oh, I'm going to make him work in the shed for the rest of his life so that he spends the rest of his life sorry for rebelling against me. No. What does the father do? The son's still a long way off. And the father runs out to him, embarrassing himself. I mean, Middle Eastern men in that time didn't run. Remember, he would have had to have hitched up his skirt thingy, whatever he's wearing. And he runs out to his son and he hugs him and he kisses him and he puts a robe on him, sandals on his feet, puts a ring on his finger and he kills the fattened calf and celebrates. Why? Because that son of his was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. God will bring judgment, yes. But he delights to show compassion on anyone who humbles themselves before him. That's why that story that Jesus told is the most famous story in all of history. And when Jesus died on a cross, God judged the sin of the world. But when Jesus died on a cross, he died in your place to offer you compassion if you want it. It's beautiful, the gospel, isn't it? But you know, it's hard to humble yourself, isn't it? The king of Assyria could not humble himself. He was too proud. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of this British poet. You've heard of this guy, W.E. Henley. You heard of him? And you know, um, he, he went on. He, was, he had his leg amputated as a, uh, as a teenager, and he went on to have a famous career as a critic and as an author. And uh, when he was a young man, he famously penned uh, this poem called Invictus, uh, which is Latin for unconquered. And this, this was Henley's poem. He said, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate, and I am the captain of my soul. It was amazing that he, after having his leg amputated, could lead a life where he changed and where he went on to be a great success. But in him being able to pen a poem like that, you could see that it had only served to make him proud. You see, because in order for him to be a success, there was all sorts of things that needed to go into that. If he'd been born with below average literary talent, um, a low IQ and with the wrong social connections, he would never have been a success. You see, sometimes the gods of our own making make us convinced that I am the master of my own fate, 
that I am the captain of my own soul, just like the king of Assyria. See, lots of us, including me included, like to think that we got to where we are in life because I've worked hard, because I'm smart, because I made the right decisions. But can I say, life is heaps more complicated than that. Right? We are not nearly as responsible for our place in life, whether successful or failing, in your own eyes, as we would like to think. Right? If you were born in Yurt, in outer Mongolia, it wouldn't matter how smart you are, how intelligent you are, or how hard you would have worked, you would have ended up poor and powerless. The reason you are where you are today has very little to do with you and a lot to do with someone else. That's what pride does. That's what the king of Assyria wouldn't do. He thought, I've got here on my own. I've created this nation and I don't bow the knee before anyone, not even God. It's why if you're intelligent, it's hard to become a Christian. Not because intelligent people don't become Christians, they do. But if you're intelligent, you're very tempted to think, I'm self-sufficient. I've got here on my own. I don't need God. That's why it's very hard to be a Christian if you're beautiful or if you're popular or if you're successful or if you're wealthy. It's possible. It's not impossible. It's possible, but it's hard. Why? Because if you are some of those things, sometimes you're very tempted to be proud and arrogant and self-sufficient and thinking, I got here off my own steam. I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. Um, I remember at a school, some of my mates thought, I'm the popular kid. And the girls dig me. I don't need God. I'm smart. I'm rich. And the chicks love me. What do I need him for? I've got everything. And then girls I knew thought, I'm pretty. And I'm nice. And I can make guys do whatever I want. So why do I need your God? I've got everything. Do you know how foolish that is? Everything that we have in this world was given to us by God. How foolish it is to think that we've got to where we are of our own steam. We need to humble ourselves before the living God. Something that the king of Assyria would not do. But something that Hezekiah would do. Now, at this point, um, I've got an option as a preacher for the next few weeks, and you can tell me what you'd like me to do. There's some of us here who are trusting in our own understanding, and when we're stressed, we don't come to God in prayer like Hezekiah because we're trusting in other things. There's some of us here who won't become Christians because we think, well, I've made it this far in life without Jesus. Why would I need him now? You think, I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. I don't need him. Now, there's two options. I could say, please believe this message. Or I could do an Isaiah. I could come every Sunday naked showing my bare buttocks, right? As a demonstration of how ridiculous it is for you to put your trust in any person other than the living God. It's totally up to you, right? If I come next week and find that there's anyone trusting in things other than Jesus, I may just come nude the week after, okay? (laughs) It is totally up to you. No, I won't do that. 
But I do want you to trust in the living God. Don't not come to him because you're too proud. And don't not pray because you're trusting in other things. Why don't I pray now? Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you uh, that you are a just God, that you bring your judgment upon the nations of the earth that proudly and arrogantly and defiantly reject you. And yet we know, Father, that your judgment, both on your own people and the other nations, is your strange work, your disturbing task, that you love to show compassion and mercy and grace. And we see this most powerfully in the cross of the Lord Jesus who died for our sins. Father, I pray that that the sin of pride that exists in all of our hearts, that you would wash it away. Father, that you would cause those of us who, because of our proud, self-resilient hearts, forget to pray to you, please help us to pray like Hezekiah. And Father, those of us who think that we're the masters of our own fate and the captains of our own soul and who would refuse to come to you in pride, that Father, you would humble us before you as the creator of all things and that while there's still time, we would come to you for compassion and mercy. Father, please do that work in our hearts by your spirit. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.